Hello and welcome to a podcast we've entitled Resources for Dismantling Racism, the Gospel of Mark. My name is Joshua Daniel and I'm an Episcopal priest at St. Columbus Church in Washington, D.C. This is an eight-week course. Um, the material of the course is a conversation and a lecture that I've had with people in a hybrid setting, both in person at St. Columbus and also on Zoom simultaneously. We're taking that and breaking it into two separate bits um, of the lecture portion and the question and answer portion, which will be released each week. Um, each week we will look at a different chapter and kind of go verse by verse, but also look at the general themes and um, purposes that are happening in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we hope for a lively discussion. would love to hear from you in email form, or if you can show up sometimes to the live discussion, um, that would be wonderful. So glad that you found us, and please enjoy. The first question that I asked uh, at the beginning of last week, uh, again, one of the main ideas for this course is to hopefully generate a sense of, like, ownership for Mark, that it doesn't feel totally distant and foreign, and when someone asks about it, like, I, I don't really know what's going on. A, a real sense of, like, ownership. And the questions, hopefully, I, um, that if we keep a laser, somewhat laser focus on, that I, I think will lead uh, to um, good waters here, are, are these, the two that I asked last time. What is Jesus' message? Um, what is his proclamation? Those are the same question. The one I want to ask today is, for whom is the message? Um, uh, for whom is the gospel directed? Okay, something I didn't get to last time, but is in the title of the course, is um, that the idea that this course is an offering as a resource for dismantling racism. I want to spend just, I want to begin, begin with uh, what that connection might be and how we might continue to touch on it as we go through the gospel, both in this fall and in the second half, for those of you uh, brave enough to stick around for the second uh, portion. In my mind, uh, there's lots of different resources for dismantling racism. Um, something that this church uh, has been involved in is uh, Sacred Ground, which is a, a similar length of time uh, as this class, uh, where they look at um, uh, the, the policy implications of uh, uh, racist systems from both the, the colonial era uh, through kind of, well, through, through today. How has our system of laws, for instance, and lots of other stuff, but like take, for instance, system of laws, uh, created systems that um, privilege certain groups of people and disadvantage others? For instance, Jim Crow, right? Okay, so there's the, that component of understanding. That is a resource in dismantling racism. What I like about the Gospel of Mark, and to me, uh, the, the themes are analogous on lots of different levels is that Jesus has a radical call of action to his disciples 
And he asked some pretty specific things of his disciples. And the things that Jesus asked of his disciples, I think, once we look at the, the bones of those, the roots of those, the roots of his kind of moral and religious um, action, I think that those can be deeply informative um, for people in general, but specifically for our parish community, as we think as seriously as we can about what it will mean to make St. Columba's um, uh, uh, an anti-racist community. Now, it's going to take some time. <laughs> um, uh, the gospel this Sunday that will be read, I think, is a huge piece of that. Uh, uh, keep your eyes out for that. When we get to Jesus's the construction of the kingdom, chapters 5, 6, and 7, I think um, become, we're going to be hopefully neck deep in, in specifically what kind of radical action is Jesus calling us to. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about, about it today. But for now, what I want to say is that a central theme in Mark is the blindness of the disciples, which means it's the blindness of us. It's so easy to read Jesus um, calling out his disciples, saying you fundamentally don't get it, and to think that what was wrong with the disciples is something that's not wrong with us, namely, they don't understand X. Usually it's the title of Jesus, that he's the Christ. Um, interestingly, it's the disciples using that title, Christ, and applying it to Jesus um, that gets Jesus most agitated um, and, and highlights in Jesus' mind how deeply the disciples have misunderstood him. So, what I'd like to suggest is as we read this and we look at the issue of blindness, that we not think that it's the disciples that are blind, but us. That is to existentialize the gospel and to think that we are, we are in it. It is directed to us. It is us that Jesus is saying, you have, um, you have missed my radical message and I'm calling you to radical discipleship. Okay, let me give you an example. So, the very beginning, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet, prophet Isaiah, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That phrase, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, it, it's just a great thought experiment to think, who, who's talking to who here? And I would suggest um, Chad Myers uh, 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 wants to suggest that there's three different ways of reading this. Way number one, behold, I, God, send my messenger, John, Elijah, um, before your face, Jesus, who will construct your way. Um, perhaps it would be kind of interesting to see who, what you all think is the most natural reading here. Way number two, behold, I, God, send my messenger, Jesus, before your face, the disciples, who will construct your way. Behold, I, God, send my messenger, the evangelist, Mark, before your face, that's us, the readers, who 
by writing the gospel will construct your way. So let's look at this. Um, here's what I mean by, by making the gospel existential. That is, placing us in the middle of the action. This is the traditional ending of the Gospel of Mark um, that was in the most, the, the manuscripts, most er, of the earliest manuscripts ended here. And then there was the, the scribes who were trans, transcribing um, uh, felt pretty uncomfortable with where it had ended. I think it's actually perfect. So um, Jesus is dead. Uh, 15 um, marks the burial of Jesus. Chapter 16 starts with when the Sabbath is over. Mary, the two Marys, the women who were at the cross the entire time, went to find Jesus to anoint his body. They got there. The stone was rolled away. They entered the, they entered the tomb. They saw a man dressed in a white robe, who we will see again in chapter 14 next, um, in, next year, uh, sitting at the right side. They were alarmed. He said, don't be alarmed. So I'm in the middle now. Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has been raised. A little bit of resurrection. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. A couple things about this. Uh, one is, notice that the man dressed in white speaks just as equally to the women as to the disciples. He doesn't say that Jesus is going ahead of the disciples. He says Jesus, the, Jesus is going ahead of you, you three women, and of course the disciples. Um, there you will see him. Okay, so the women get lumped in with the disciples there. But here's what, I, here's what I want to point out. The very end of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, the, 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 man, the man in the white robe, says to go back to Galilee. Nowhere in Mark does Jesus say, after we go to Jerusalem, go back to Galilee. Okay? So this is like, where, does this guy come, where is this guy coming up with that Jesus told his disciples, go back to Galilee, and there you'll see me. Galilee, in Hebrew, literally means cylinder or circle. Here's a suggestion that at the end of Mark, once we finally see the resurrected Jesus, that is when we start to read the gospel. That's when we go back to chapter 1 and we finally can ask, um, we can finally read that first line, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ and understand for the first time what that could possibly mean. Because we've finally seen what Jesus is up to, what it means for Jesus to be resurrected. The imagery that I've been using uh, to both promote the class, but also as a part of the slideshow, is Jacob Lawrence's um, a series of paintings that he called The Great Migration, which was... Um, of a lot of uh, um, the black community from the south to the north in the early 20th century. Uh, I think it is a perfect representation of what Jesus is calling us to. 
what is going on in the Gospel of Mark is not the process of just Jesus' disciples. It is our process. We are the ones who are blind. When Jesus speaks to us, uh, when Jesus speaks the words that he does in the Gospel, just having the separation of time isn't enough to grant understanding. We have to be right there with the disciples, wrestling in the Sea of Galilee, struggling to understand Jesus at every point. This story of migration, some heads um, bent low, uh, some looking straight ahead, some carrying heavy loads. Uh, I think we have the Spirit above, uh, both leading and giving hope. Um, Both from the disciples are on a journey, um, and that journey is still ours. That's my sense of what this class is as a resource for dismantling racism. Let me just pause there for a minute, and I'm going to stop share. Um, Connections, thoughts, Sarah. Uh, so, just to clarify. Yes. Is your point with um, the connection between like Galilee and like circle? Yes. Is, is your point sort of like that they're also metaphorically saying, okay, now you've seen what happened, go back to the beginning and like see how this all plays out? Or yes. Is, okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, so we get to the end of the gospel. The end of the gospel isn't the beginning of the church. The end of the gospel is starting back at Mark 1. Um, it, there is a, uh, uh, a circular nature for which it takes to understand what's going on in the gospel. Like, what, I, what I tried to say last time in the first week is that what we're aiming for is not to understand all the right words about Jesus, all the right definitions, whether that be original sin or the Messiah or the Son of Man, or what sin is for Jesus, but to have like the wisdom that Jesus is trying to get the disciples to like live inside their bodies. That's what makes it a circle. That's what, why we get to the end of the gospel, and we're led straight back to the beginning. And I, I think that's what Mark was trying to say. Um, go back to Galilee, there you will see Jesus, means flip back to chapter 1. Start back in Galilee, and see if this time you've got a chance about understanding the true nature of what Jesus is up to. When you talk about that we're blind. Yes. Uh, I'm, for me, if you, 55 years ago, if you were a woman, you could not be ordained. You couldn't even go to seminary. Right. And there were very few African Americans yeah. uh, in the Episcopal Church. Right. So, I mean, we've got a lot of blindness about equity, and racism is about equity. Yeah. Jesus, I think, was preaching to. Not the aristocracy, not the vestry at St. Columbus. Yeah. But about the people that work here or the people that work or the people who go to church here. 
Yeah. So I'm pulling up um, the, thank you, Joe. Uh, Joe, how I understood that was uh, uh, blindness uh, still may be applicable to the Episcopal Church, <laughs> as great as it is. I feel that very deep in my bones. Um, and I uh, would love to, maybe it would be good to talk about some of my experiences in seminary just recently. <laughs> uh, I was there from 2015 to 2018. I got a great got to see a great slice of what the Episcopal Church is basically across the country and the world, uh, Anglican Church, and uh, lots of blindness um, uh, for which I do not exempt myself. The question about equity is exactly where I'm going. Um, to me, uh, the questions about, uh, 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 Sarah, you brought up with uh, sin and ailments, um, uh, those, I think, are questions about, for Jesus, about disenfranchisement and inequity. Uh, um, but so uh, I also think that like the educate, the education component about like uh, sacred ground is so important. The hardest issue in my mind about the system of racism in our country and around the world, but in our country specifically, is the radicalness it will take to address issues of equity, um, and I, and I mean equity in the uh, the dollars. <laughs> I mean there's lots of different forms of equity, but, but I'm talking specifically about financial equity. That is sin issue number one in the Gospel of Mark, I think. And you know what? Let's talk about it right now. All right, uh, this is this is perfect. Uh, but I do want to say out loud, okay, and let's see how much this actually uh, tracks on what I just said. I think um, Gospel Mark is an eternal echo calling us to radical action. And it's, wasn't radical, it was radical 2,000 years ago, it's just as radical now if we have uh, eyes to see. Even though we might know all the right words, that Jesus is the Messiah, we must begin again and read the Gospel again with fresh eyes. Jesus really meant what he said, it's calling us to radical, okay, yeah, so it does track. Uh, I love it. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so here's here's what I want to do. Just real quick, this is the end of chapter one. Um, I, uh, you know what? I'm going to come back to the end of chapter one. Yeah, Kirsten, I see your hand raised. Oh. But maybe. It was not. All right, no worries. I was a little worried. That was nice. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to the end of chapter one because we are we have teed up perfectly the, the question about equity for uh, the discussion I wanted to have about um, debt and purity. Okay. So, in order to understand, in order to understand what Jesus had in mind when he was talking about sin, uh, talking about the broader issues uh, that, which involve kind of the socio-political and religious context of uh, what was happening in ancient Palestine. Now, I just want to provide a little bit of that context and see if I can make, um, make the issue specifically about sin um, a little bit less opaque. So, kind of general rabbinic literature that uh, ancient uh, Palestinians, uh, Jesus' hearers, Mark's hearers would have uh, understood, it, kind of like talking about broad uh, landscapes, We've got three different big symbolic systems. Um, uh, Hebrews would have identified uh, special times, namely Sabbath, special places uh, like the temple and the synagogue. They were identified also by how they ate. Um, 
and who they ate with, so diet, and also uh, bar bodily marks through circumcision. So in fact, I'm going to go back up real quick. So that last half of Mark, uh, chapter 1, we have a, um, a, a, a 24 hours in the life of Jesus. So it starts off, so Mark, even though Mark is an, an apocalyptic book in a lot of ways, where Jesus created a new heaven, he's also firmly rooted in the ongoing affairs of, of, of his um, everyday thing. So he calls the disciples, and then they go to Capernaum. Capernaum in Galilee is the, center, is the central city. So Jesus isn't just going out to the wilderness, isn't creating a monastic movement that's detached from the world. He goes straight into the fray, specifically into Capernaum. Then notice, um, when the Sabbath came, that's sacred time, he goes to the sacred place, the synagogue. Okay? As soon as they left the synagogue, he goes to house. Um, uh, the house is going to be a really important location for Mark. It's oftentimes where Jesus gives private instruction to his closest disciples. In the house, he's served um, uh, by Simon's uh, mother-in-law. That evening, okay, so we're doing the full 24 hours. That evening at sunset, to our ears, that's an innocuous, an innocuous comment, but to everyone else, they would have understood that the Sabbath was over. So that evening at sunset, Jesus starts to heal. So he specifically does not heal on the Sabbath. That would have been breaking the law. Jesus isn't quite ready to go there yet, but he has the whole city gathered around at the door. Okay, and then that morning, uh, he goes out to pray and decides to spread his ministry out. So, Mark is very aware of placing Jesus in symbolic places um, that uh, have high uh, significance for both time and place. Okay. Um, also, in kind of rabbinic literature in the Torah, uh, having these Symbolic systems also meant a strict hierarchy of people. And uh, did just a little bit of research. There's lots of different ways to classify it. Here's one broadly, uh, one broad way in which Jesus's, the time in which Jesus lived, the way that people would have been categorized. Right there at the top is priests, Levites, Israelites, Converts, freed slaves, um, disqualified priests, that means the illegitimate children of uh, priests, because, of course, then your vocation was about a family business. It wasn't something that you just, like, volunteered for. Um, temple slaves, um, bastards, eunuchs, those with uh, damaged testicles, and those without uh, male genitalia. Notice who isn't on this list. Women. women, yes, women, uh, um, that's not a typo, uh, foreigners, uh, women, farmers? foreigners, no, farmers, farmers, well, I think, so a lot of farmers would be Israelites, right, would, would be, uh, um, but that, but the Israelites had a lot of aristocracy, yes, so the, the carpenters, the fishermen, 
Right. Those who owned land, those who did not own land. Yep. The day laborers. Part, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there for sure. For sure. Well, yeah, I wondered about that because when Jesus called uh, a couple of the people to come out of the boat and serve him. Yes. Those were the sons of the boss of, of the owner of the boat. They were pretty high up. But how about the, the hired men that stayed behind? Jesus is trying to put the dispossessed out from the edge into the middle. How come he didn't call a couple of hired men? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Dwayne, that's a great question. Um, interestingly, in chapter 2, he does call uh, Levi, son of Alphaeus, who is a tax collector, who, again, is in that kind of artisan class, not a day laborer, um, not at the bottom of the pool, but, but someone who's definitely uh, socially outcast. But he didn't call anybody like that, ones that, the people that Jacob Lawrence is worshiping. Okay, chapter, Mark chapter 10, um, I would say that uh, blind Bartimaeus uh, counts in that category. Um, true, that is at the end. That's <laughs> just before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, but blind Bartimaeus, uh, you'll recall, is um, out in Jericho or near Jericho, and all he has is a cloak. Um, he calls out. He gets hushed. People say, you're not important. Jesus doesn't want. Um, Jesus stops. He says, who's calling for me? They say, Bartimaeus, it's your moment. He throws off his cloak, which... Um, would have signified his last remaining possession and says, it's me, Lord, and Jesus um, uh, welcomes him to follow on the way, which is Mark's favorite way to describe the path towards discipleship. But, Dwayne, such a perceptive thing to say that um, the disciples are definitely in the artisan class and not the lowest class. And, and I don't have a whole lot to say about that other than it's a very interesting um, uh, remark to make. Yeah, Dan. Don't women count as those without penises? Hopefully. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yes. Yes, I think there's like a great postmodern thing to say there, but um, I'm pretty sure what they meant uh, was, uh, you know, um, Women aren't anywhere else on the list, so I just well, that's just one list. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, uh, uh, people without without status or privilege is how I would just um, describe women in um, ancient Palestine. Unfortunately, and Jesus succumbs a little bit to uh, those cultural expectations, and in other ways, he um, he radically thwarts them. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at specific examples. Well, the whole list seems ridiculous. Did other societies besides uh, these, the, uh, what are we calling these people at this point in time? Yeah. Other societies have these kinds of sort of what we would conceive of as ridiculous lists? Um, someone besides me is going to have to speak with authority on that. My guess is that it's not all that uncommon for ancient, ancient patriarchal systems. Well, look at the donor list of our political parties. Or current day. 
patriarchal exactly. systems. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I want to give a little bit more context before we get specifically to scripture. We're actually doing okay on time. Um, so, economically, the temple, and by temple, I don't mean the temple of God, which is in all of our hearts. I mean the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon supposedly built. Um, it's the second temple. The first one was destroyed, uh, which forced the exile to Babylon, I believe. They came back, rebuilt it. Interestingly, rebuilt by, in part, the Romans. Um, uh, but, but the temples come to be the dominant both symbol and center of, uh, of life in Palestine. Originally, the temple, so originally I mean like in Leviticus, in the Torah, the temple is going to serve as a central storehouse, specifically for the use of re the redistribution of wealth. That's what the tithe system originally was supposed to do. We're going to take a little bit from everybody into the temple, and we're going to redistrib um, redistribute that to the people who need it. Um, that's original, the original kind of tithe system. That was the function of uh, the priest, priestly class. As you can imagine, um, uh, uh, from uh, the tithes and other dues to the priesthood and the temple throughout the repayment and interest on which the loans, even though the contributions... Uh, even from um, dysphoria Jews, which were, were happening even in ancient Palestine, uh, from around the world, there was a surplus of wealth flowed into and piled up in Jerusalem uh, during uh, the time of Jesus. But by the time we get to the time of Jesus, there is no mechanisms um, by which these resources could be channeled back to the people most in need. Rather, the wealth from the temple um, the surplus uh, was used on luxury goods or simply just stored in the forms of uh, valuable metals and objects. If you can imagine. So, <laughs> right. Okay, so Galilee during this time is um, one of the most naturally fertile agricultural regions in Palestine. Okay, and it's very likely that uh, Rome had some hand in the giving and taking of lands and farms uh, to foreign generals and the um, aristocracy, though it's like not clear how much that happened. Um, landowners in, uh, in Galilee oftentimes were the priestly class. Precisely because of the tithe system. They, they were ones who were accumulating quite a bit of wealth. Okay, Some peasant holdings were subdivided, but more often the younger brothers were left landless because of inheritance laws. Also, large numbers of peasants who had fallen into debt were forced into the ranks of the rural proletariat. This is getting to how the, how the, how the economy in Jesus' time was actually faring out. Okay, so most of these became uh, day laborers, um, but also Herod, for his building projects, the temple hired a lot of them. But the effect that that had was that those laborers, those day laborers on, on the Herodian Roman projects, ended up being permanently uprooted from the land um, and uh, uh, from potential sources of civility. So uh, having 
uh, much more instability in their life. Thus, even without the factor of foreign rule, there would have been an intense hostility between common people and the ruling gentry and chief priests, um, both in Jesus' time and in the time when Mark was written. Hence, the rebellion. <laughs> the rebellion was a multifaceted part that started um, probably while Mark was writing, but culminated after um, uh, in, the, in the destruction of the temple. The rebels didn't destroy the temple, but to put down the rebels, the Roman tanks came in and, and blew it up. So a Galilean tenant farmer um, could have had up to half his harvest extracted as rent. Uh, so uh, the, all of that to say, I, I'm trying to give a little bit of context to the poverty that Jesus was encountering. Um, the, the, the poverty was widespread. Uh, it was a zero-sum economy, um, which meant that only that some people winning meant that others would lose, that there, there was not a, a, a sharing of, of wealth. And these were like cycles. People were getting poorer and poorer. Okay, so with that context, I'm going to turn now to the gospel and do a, uh, a close reading of a, a few of our texts. Okay. Would someone like to read this? This is uh, the beginning of chapter... No, no, no. This is the end of chapter 1. Uh, yes, end of chapter 1. Thanks, Elizabeth. A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you choose... Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose to be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly but stayed out in the country and people came to him from every quarter. So thank you Elizabeth. This isn't the first healing. Um, the first healing is going to be of Simon's mother-in-law who's in bed with a fever. Um, but this one presents a number of what I've been calling kind of um, symbolic representations for the, the type of thing that Jesus is interested in. A couple things to think about when we see uh, Jesus healing people. One is that in these healing stories, there's very little description about physical ailments. So, for instance, when we think about sickness, going from sickness to health, we think of... Um, uh, doctors going through a list of like tables to figure out what's wrong, the ailments, and then how to handle each ailment um, uh, uh, to, um, to become better. But notice, so this person is described as a leper, but there's nothing about his 
his skin. I mean, there's very little focus on the kind of biology about what the, what the ailment is. Instead, the emphasis is totally on the um, social uh, uh, ostracization that this person has experienced. So notice the wording. If you choose, if you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus touched him. Okay. Um, yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Yes, please, Lena. Uh, why does he cleanse a leper instead of healing a leper? Right. Great. Perfect. Great question. Um, I'm going to get to that in just a second, although a lot of what I'm saying is kind of all wrapped up into it. So in a, 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 a kind of culture of purity, to touch someone who is socially outcast, uh, which is like just the general description of what leprosy is, means you've been cast out. So Jesus is out in the country uh, when he encounters him. If you touch this person, you become infected. Not infected with a biological variant, a coronavirus coronavirus-esque ailment. You have made yourself unclean. It's kind of a hard distinction to make, but um, it isn't about you being sick. It's about you being um, uh, unworthy. Uh, Yeah, yeah, okay, so yes, and this is perfectly our problem, um, which is when we think about uh, uh, sickness, it's almost completely in biological terms, which makes ter perfect sense. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm very glad that we can um, uh, very closely identify illnesses and treat them through science. But what's going on here is not about primarily about biology. It is about a social ranking of people. And this person was outcast. Um, and generally, um, when we encounter leprosy, that's what we mean. Uh, or that's what the, the New Testament writers have in mind. It is a class of people who have been cast out. I'm not saying that they didn't have physical ailments, but it wasn't the mere them needing to not be sick before they got um, brought back into society. Again, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying that, that when you, I'm glad you phrased that, because it actually solidified something for me. I thought it was really interesting, this passage, because the leper's kind of a jerk, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. you want like, you could do it if you wanted to. And then after being told not to tell anyone, he goes out and tells everybody. Right. And sort of, that sort of gets the kind of, Yes. Yeah. Yes, Carson. Thank you uh, for that. I. You know, it's some of this. It's it's um, going to be a Rorschach test to a certain degree. Um, 
It's interesting, though, that the leper, like, implicitly gives Jesus the choice, the chance to say, like, I'm not interested in, in, in handling this. What I want to draw out and draw everybody's attention to is that Jesus was willing to physically touch this person. And counterculturally, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, Jesus' actions reverse the process. Instead of Jesus becoming infected by his unholiness, um, his, uh, uh, his uh, uh, social... Uh, un- his un- uncleanliness socially, and, and instead of that passing to Jesus, Jesus heals him. It reverses. Jesus, again, radically uh, flips the script. Instead of be- becoming unclean, as would have been the, the case for anyone else, um, socially in the minds of people, Jesus makes him clean. Okay, but there's, there's more here. Just well, give, give me a second to pull it all out. Okay. And then what does Jesus say to him? First, he says, uh, 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 see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest. Here's a suggestion. It, was the, it would have been the priest's responsibility to um, make this person clean, to, to perform a ritual, uh, 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 a ritual service of purity, a sacrifice of purity that would have brought this person back into the community, but... The implicit criticism that Jesus has of the priests is that they are refusing to do that. They are not performing the um, kind of Levitical responsibilities that they've been given, which is for the poor and the widow and the foreigner. Instead, they are using their power to um, enrich themselves without having ministry uh, to the people who have been socially rejected. So, Jesus says, go and present yourself to the priest as a testament to them. The more literal translation there is as a testimony against them. As in, I have healed, I have done what they have refused to do. I am fulfilling the Mosaic commands. I am the fulfillment of the Torah. This is Jesus taking on um, and rejecting their parochial cultural purity. So, getting to Jesus' as miracle worker. Miracle workers are uh, are, are a common theme in uh, ancient Palestine. There was uh, miracle workers all the time that could perform magical acts. Jesus does not work as they would have worked. First of all, he says, don't say anything to anyone. A miracle worker is out there for fame, right, to get money. Um, But Jesus is trying to keep a low profile. And uh, Dwayne, this is kind of where I'd like to make a connection to your earlier point. Oftentimes, the way American Christianity presents the Messiah, I'm going to stop the share here. Oftentimes, the way that American Christianity presents the Messiah is Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah precisely because he can do miracles. And and that is an anachronism, okay? 
anyone in the ancient world being able to manipulate the physical laws of the world or the spiritual, the physical laws by being able to cure somebody of a biological disease, as we would say, or the spiritual laws, and that is being able to um, dispossess somebody of an unclean spirit. Anybody can do that back then. That was, th those were common acts. Miracle workers um, um, did this often. What Jesus is trying to draw um, our attention to is not himself as a miracle worker, but as Jesus, as we'll read in the next chapter, as a son of man, is the true fulfillment of the human one. Is, is the true fulfillment of the laws of Moses. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the Torah because what Jesus actually cares about is justice. These priests don't really care about justice, otherwise they would have tried to make this man clean. They refused to do it. But Jesus, shunning what would have been culturally expected of him, namely to not touch a leper, is willing to upset those cultural expectations and to have actual physical solidarity with the outcast. And the miracle is that even though uh, Jesus works against all those norms. He's able to overcome them. So, uh, Dwayne, um, uh, Old Testament, they wanted a king, and God's like, you're going to have a false god? And Jesus is saying, yes, that's exactly right. Um, you want a Messiah to conquer the Romans, but what I'm giving you is true liberation, true justice, not just words. How is, it, is this landing? Is this not landing? Where, how, where are you? So it's an interesting question around yeah, James. the translation of the sentence before Mopetiti, which is in yes. NRSV, but if you look at other sources, they use the anger instead. Yeah, okay, good, yes. It ties into your kind of uh, point, I think. Um, yes, the moved with pity uh, towards the man... And the anger is towards what? Well, towards the uh, towards the, the fact that guys about Yes, yes, yeah. Anger. So done yeah, job. that's perfect, James. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, it, this happens throughout the Gospel of Mark when Jesus comes in close contact with um, uh, with people in genuine suffering. It's the humanity that's overwhelming that he responds to. Okay, if there isn't a, an immediate comment, this is just the, um, the foretaste of the, the, main, the main course, so to speak, which is at the very beginning of chapter 2. Um, I've got this in two slides. Does somebody want to read the first one? Sure, I'll read it. Thanks, Kirsten. some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, 
Thank you. And somebody else for the second half? Thank you, Leah. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At one seat, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the Thank you, Lena and Chris. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Um, I just don't understand the difference between. Um, I mean, what's the deal? What's the difference between your sins are forgiven and I, I don't get the connection. And pick up your mat and walk. That's how I handle most problems. I just shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> a true father. <laughs> yeah, Sarah. Um, so, like, when I read that section, yeah, it kind of seems to me that Jesus is being a little snarky. Okay. Um, so, so I guess, like, kind of like the way he's sort of like positioning it is like there's these two things: there's like forgiving sins, and then like physically like healing the physical ailment that is like stopping the person that is like causing the paralysis. Yeah. And he's kind of saying, like, okay, well, like, curing someone of paralysis is very difficult. Uh-huh. And I'm going to do that. Yeah. And, like, rhetorically saying, like, it is easier to forgive sins. So he's like, I'm going to do the harder thing. So yeah. So you know I can do the easier thing. Oh, uh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, that's very good. That is a very good um, Yeah. Does that make sense to you, Lena? I mean, is that... Uh, Thank you. Sarah. Sarah, excuse me, I can't, can't see Christian right now. Anyway, yeah. um, that helped me a lot. Thank you. Awesome. Great. Okay, so um, what I'd like to suggest about this story is that, oh, yeah, please go ahead.
see things in people's hands. He actually read, he actually reads these people's hearts, and these people, even they weren't singing. And he says, guys, see inside you the evilness of your hearts of not of of you don't want me to um, even heal this man because that would show who I am, and you are even more upset that I would thank his sins for forgiven. Instead of really focusing on the miracle, the fact that, you know, uh, what I'm about to do. So I, I think it's a, it's a great example of Jesus at his best. And I, don't, I, I think I can understand why some people would see it as snarky, but I see it as flipping the tables and um, really making people completely uh, convinced that he's got his priorities straight Yeah, that's great, David. The Sabbath. Right. Good. Perfect. No, that's that's really nice. Can I lower my hand now? <laughs> Very polite of you. Very polite of you. Thanks. I love it. I love it. Well. Um, uh, uh, take up your mat and go, David. Um, okay, so what I, I like to kind of draw attention or um, uh, highlight, pull out at least an aspect of this, is that um, Jesus is clearly going, or well, as it will become clear, Jesus is clearly beginning to like um, draw the, the ire of the, the ruling class. Where, yeah. Where, since when, um, I mean, I'm talking to myself in terms of people that know what they're talking about. <laughs> since, when, since when was Capernaum Jesus' home? Yes. He was, he was a Nazarene, and then he just kind of wandered around the countryside. But here it says when he returned to Capernaum, it was reported that he was at home. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if we're missing a um, an indefinite article there, uh, Lena, that he was at a home, he was in a residence. Um, there's no indication in any of the Gospels that Jesus had a home. Um, I mean, he was from Nazareth, and his parents clearly uh, raised him in, in probably a family home, but uh, that's a great point. Um it, it likely is not a reference to a home that was Jesus's, I think, is a fair way to phrase it. Great question. Here we have a story where um, uh, uh, Mark is combining both disability and debt. So, son, your sins are forgiven. Something I mentioned last week briefly, um, the more literal translation there are um, son, your uh, debts are forgiven. Your debts are forgiven. Um, and here, uh, Sarah, this gets to your question kind of earlier. Um, disease and physical dis disability are inextricably part of the cycle of poverty for um, Palestinians. So uh, in one way, yes, uh, um, disease and disability uh, does result in sin, 
when you think of sin as a form of debt to the priestly or scribal class. So if we look at um, this next part, um, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Blasphemy, of course, is what Jesus will ultimately be killed for. That's the charge against him that he's um, uh, 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 um, crucified for, blasphemy. Um, who can forgive sins but God alone? This is a perfect instance where uh, kind of a surface reading doesn't get far enough. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is the scribal class saying, get your hand out of our pocket. This man owes us money. Um, you do not have the power to release him of his debt to us. Think about, I mean, I want to say almost only that reading makes sense. <laughs> Otherwise, why would they be upset? Um, and, and, and perhaps you haven't seen it yet, but like as the story progresses, um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the frustration and the reaction towards Jesus is so incredibly intense. If Jesus was merely just a miracle worker, they do not execute miracle workers. Oftentimes these people are local um, celebrities uh, with uh, uh, lots of fanfare. They charge him with blasphemy because Jesus is intentionally upsetting the social order in a way that dispossesses the privilege and empowers the poor. That is like a man, like I, I, I want to say that sentence like five more times. But, so I'm just going to pause here and say like, um, do I have you all on this one? Or does that seem like a ludicrous thing to say? Uh, let's really pause here and talk about it because that's, that's a central claim that I want to make again and again and again. Jesus, it, let me make it. Let me make it again. Jesus is ultimately killed because he is upsetting the economic order of things away from the powerful and towards the dispossessed. Son, your debts are forgiven. Get up and walk. I'm restoring you to the community. You do not owe these men money. You are whole in the eyes of God. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Power, or money being almost the most kind of like material, uh, uh, but yes, it, it's the power that they have in their community, which, is, which isn't just about money. That's a great point. Great point. Well, you don't kill somebody who talks about feeding the hungry and being nice to your neighbor and the lilies of the field. Yeah, so I don't want to I don't want to steal the thunder from next week. Um, but Jesus like cures a person who has a withered hand, and the response is the Pharisees and the Herodians went out to kill him. <laughs> I mean, like think about this in Shakespearean terms. What is provoking this strong response by the aristocratic class? 
that Jesus merely healed people doesn't account for it. Um, um, sin, he, Jesus is liberating a class of people. The poor, the, the physically ill, the ostracized. Well, he was a Jew. He yes. was born a Jew. Right. He practiced. Died a Jew. Yep. Died a Jew. He practiced the temple religion. He went to the synagogue on Fridays, the Sabbath. And, and a good part of what you talked about tonight is that he is basically saying to the priests that you, know, you guys need to return to the true meaning of our religion. Which is what? Justice. Yeah, that's that's what I think. Um, ju justice was Joe's answer. Uh, Sarah? Yeah, I guess I, my, my point is kind of similar to that. Yeah. Like, when you have this society where the socioeconomic structure is and, like, locuses of power and spiritual authority and locuses of power is so Yes, yeah, yeah, like yeah. In, in ways that are like, you know, sometimes you get a bit of that today in certain areas, but like it's not at the same, it's not in the same way. Right. Like we don't have a great parallel. Yeah. But it's kind of like, it goes along with Jesus saying like, we need to return our focus to like being marginalized as often. Like, and you know, because like Jesus is God, like, no, actually God cares about these people who Yeah, 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 that's great. You've got to go back to them, too. And I kind of think, I kind of think, I, I totally agree with you about how intertwined the religious with the political, with the sin and the purity and the sacrifices and the holiness and the forgiveness are way more intertwined in their completely infused spiritual world than in our kind of post-secular blah, blah, blah. I kind of think that racism gets pretty close to this that racism is this amalgamation of religious um, shame and institutional power um, um, systematically dispossessing people of their um, uh, dignity and honor and and also this like religious thing. You know, I, anyway, I, I agree with you, but I also think like um, this is why I think it might it's such an interesting analog to think about, and it, hopefully instructional. Okay, I've got we've got just seven minutes more, and I'm going to power through some of this stuff because it just gets cooler and cooler. I think uh, from here. Okay. Uh, okay. So this is where we get the first introduction of the human one. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, or literally the human one has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Mark's staging of this is so perfect. Like, this is a great screenplay. Jesus is talking to everyone, and then he he focuses uh, as a laser straight on the man. Um, uh, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. Um, you see the word amazed down there? That's the same word that they used to describe the women who were encountered the man dressed in the white robe at the tomb, it was amazed and terrified. So it's not right to think about the crowd as saying, 
they're ready to make Jesus king or whatever. It, it is a, an amalgamation, again, uh, to overuse that word, of um, disorientation, of excitement, of being dazed, and terror. Um, uh, the, what Jesus is up to has everyone nervous. Okay, so this is... Why would they, why would they glorify God if they're nervous? Um, uh, we go to the throne of God with fear and trembling, David. <laughs> uh, that's a quip. I, uh, that's glib. I'm sorry. Um, but that... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so the next next story is um, Jesus calling uh, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Um, I have some halfway, a, a couple, uh, some of this doesn't matter. These slides you have access to if you want to go back and look. Um, notice that Jesus is beside the sea when he calls. It's the same location that he calls the disciples. Um, Levi is not mentioned again. Um, which is just kind of an in, interesting, uh, like, inner baseball thing about um, the 12 disciples that get named. Um, a lot of those don't appear again, uh, but it was very likely more than 12 uh, who were following Jesus. Uh, okay, and then we get to the, the really great stuff. Um, he's sitting at Levi's house. Who's also there? Sinners. And tax collectors, the, <laughs> the lowest of the low, the socially outcasts. Levi, being a tax collector, uh, was oftentimes doing the bidding of uh, the colonizers of Rome. Um, so despised by his own people, namely the Judeans. So sitting at table, the literalism there is a reclining at meal upon your left elbow. Okay, this is a very relaxed setting. Um, that Jesus is fraternizing um, with these lowest of the low. Also, this is the first time that Mark uses the term disciple. Um, and the implication there, I think, is uh, kind of straightforward, and that is discipleship happens at table, at house, with whom? With sinners, namely the outcast. Um, and any time that we talk about table or food, uh, uh, the Eucharist um, is always right there in the background. And it's very interesting to think about the pinnacle image of the Eucharist as a gathering of whom? Not saints, but sinners, is who, is who Jesus calls. Um, okay, I love this part. The scribes... Um, there's an interesting phrase there, scribes of the Pharisees. Mark does this thing called um, uh, 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 textual um, stitching, which is he introduces the Pharisees by stitching them to the last group of people, the scribes, so the scribes of the Pharisees. Um, uh, was eating with, so they see that Jesus is eating, and who do they go to? Not Jesus, but the disciples. It's like, a great first example of triangulation, but Jesus cuts through the triangle, if you're like in a family systems uh, uh, language, Jesus cuts through the, the triangle and, issue, and talks to them directly. Those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. This is the greatest example that when we are talking about sin, Jesus is not talking about what we think, which is unholiness, but rather a group of people, the socially outcasts. Because if we were really talking about holiness or unholiness, Jesus would not be trying to build a coalition with those who are fundamentally rejecting the justice of God. Um, rather, uh, Jesus is saying, um, uh, you aristocratic people, you think you're fine. You're not, but you don't care. Um, the people who do care, those are the people I'm going for. That is going to be my coalition of people, namely sinners. Jesus unmasks the Pharisees' duplicity for all of their rhetoric about extending holiness to all of Israel. We'll get to that next week. Their practices betray their commitment to rigid social boundaries over the dignity, recognizing the dignity of all people, namely the poor. That concludes the lecture portion of today's podcast. If you'd like to hear some of the discussion between me and the class, please stay tuned for the second part of this week's podcast in a separate Q&A file. So thrilled that you've made it to the end, and I truly hope and pray that this series deepens and challenges your sense of who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling us to do. Peace.